Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in from wherever you are around the world. And I know this is truly global, us lot. Um, we've got questions later on in this podcast from Dubai, bits of Europe, bits of the United Kingdom even. So um, uh, thank you for tuning in wherever you are. We've got questions on a whole range of topical issues. Inevitably, after my reflections uh, last week about the advice, in inverted commas, that Keir Starmer was getting from just about everybody on the planet, um, there are responses to that from a range of different perspectives. Uh, There are questions about Johnson, the virus, uh, you know, all the kind of urgent themes. But I'm going to reflect, if it's okay with all of you, for a bit on uh, the BBC, which has plunged itself into another of these regular crises that kind of erupt around it. And this one would not be greatly significant in itself if it wasn't part of a pattern. And the pattern matters because we finance the BBC. And I bet those of you listening to the podcast want the BBC to work. The idea is a brilliant one. Uh, to have a sort of publicly funded broadcaster. Uh, It means uh, that, on the whole, its output is cheap and accessible. However, it has been for a long time, certainly when I've had any dealings with it, either as a staff correspondent or in other ways, poorly run. And this is illustrated by these crises. Take the Diana situation. And one of the key questions that will be whirling around in uh, coming days, why was Martin Bashir reappointed when quite a few people in that management hierarchy knew about problems associated with him? Why did no one say, are you sure this is the right move to make? Now, Tony Hall didn't, the Director General, and others. That's not because Tony Hall, who I knew a bit, had occasional, uh, very occasional <laughs> uh, conversations with. Um, he, he's not dishonest. He's not one of those sort of macho, get me a scoop under any circumstances, mate, kind of tabloid journalist. Far from it. He was basically an ultra-cautious bureaucrat. But that, too, brings problems. Uh, he... My guess is, I don't know, that you know, as Director General, he wasn't directly involved in the reappointment of Martin Bashir. Uh, he would have been vaguely aware of it and moved on because there is a sort of curious mix within that overmanaged, multi-layered hierarchy in news and current affairs and, I'm afraid, other departments at the BBC and perhaps more widely in other publicly funded bodies like the NHS where the lines of accountability and responsibility are so blurred that, I think we've discussed this with the railways, everyone's in charge and therefore no one's in charge. Everyone's responsible and therefore no one's responsible. And you see this kind of pattern of detachment in all the various crises that have kind of hit the BBC. So Tony Hall clearly didn't intervene, that we know, when Martin Bashir was reappointed, (laughs) bizarrely, in a sort of comic, darkly comic twist as religious affairs editor or whatever his title was. Um, And that pattern uh, comes into play with the crisis over Savile. Do you remember George Entwistle was Director General? Again, I knew him a bit. I I worked with him a bit when he was uh, a a producer and an utterly decent guy. Uh, not corrupt. But he did a Today programme interview, if you remember, the Saturday morning after Newsnight put out a report which proved to be wholly false, accusing uh, McAlpine, the senior Tory, the former Tory treasurer, uh, of uh, various acts of paedophilia. Anyway, it proved false, but the controversy was already raging uh, because Newsnight had pulled an account of what Savile was really up to and no one quite knew why it was pulled. And George Entwistle went on the Today programme uh, that morning and 
it's forgotten now, but he told Jam Humphreys, amongst other things, um, he hadn't watched the Newsnight programme. And it is, again, extraordinary, this kind of sense of detachment from the output. But the senior management are both kind of fearful of being caught largely by Tory newspapers or the Twitterati, not for bias, but for something. So there's all kinds of shapeless kind of fearful scrutiny, but at the same time, a cocooned complacency. Indeed, I remember uh, being invited by Tony Hall to, uh, you know, this is the, the glorious side of these senior managers with their huge salaries. They have, most of the time, a great time. And he invited me, soon after Diana died, to a dinner at the proms. Uh, the BBC obviously run the proms. He has uh, a box uh, on, a, you know, the DG obviously has a box there whenever they want one. And um, we had dinner afterwards, I think it was days after she had uh, died. And he sort of told me quite openly that it was she, uh, the news of the death emerged on a Sunday and um, he was away at his second home and wasn't fully across it. This was before the era of Twitter and rolling news in its full manifestation. And so that too, I thought, kind of was very casual about the relationship with the output uh, and George Entwistle didn't watch Newsnight and if you remember the whole furore over Andrew Gilligan and his report uh, claiming that Blair and Campbell sexed up the WMD dossier against the wishes of the senior intelligence officers that never fully added up because the senior intelligence officers signed it off there might have been other issues. Why did they sign it off? Uh, why was the intelligence so wrong? Um, but the story wasn't wholly right. But the next day, uh, the then editor of News Account Affairs said they defended every word of the reports um, and a Mail on Sunday article that accompanied these reports, which if you look at that Mail on Sunday article, was full of imprecise allegations. Maybe some of it was correct, but it was so imprecise, it wasn't quite clear what he was alleging, uh, Andrew Gilligan, but that was wholly defended. The then Director General, Greg Dyke, was away at the time, came back, uh, defended the whole thing, and then admitted he hadn't read the transcripts. Uh, this is, uh, at the very top, a sort of cocoon complacency, but it goes down through the layers of management. Um, the Cliff Richard one, uh, you know, what a great idea. Let's let's screw Sky, ITN, Scoop. Let's get a helicopter. We've got this story. Let's get a helicopter. No forensic questioning about what they were doing and why. And quite often, except for the very top, where director generals fall on a regular basis, and Tony Hall has sort of fallen retrospectively. He's had to resign from his post at the National Gallery. George Entwistle resigned, I think, the same day of that Today programme interview. Uh, Greg Dyke had to go. Uh, but lower down, even though lower down, and, and in a vague way again, uh, there are people more directly, theoretically, responsible for the output, um, when these eruptions happen, uh, culpability is very hard to uncover because, as I say, of the ill-defined lines of accountability. So those involved tend to get promoted into better jobs or pretty damn good jobs. Um, it's something that Cliff Richard noted, that all the key people who took those stupid macho decisions, get a helicopter over his house, they're, they're all in great jobs and well rewarded for acts that deserved actually far more punitive consequences for those involved. So that is the pattern. It is, you know, of course organisations on the scale of the BBC will make big mistakes. Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, news is a human activity. It's not a science. It's deeply subjective. And of course, now over this Bashir one, which I think in some ways is more nuanced than the others. I mean, the Cliff Richard thing, there was, you know, kind of no defense. Um, similarly, 
the defence of every word of the Gilligan report was just crass, stupid, because there were flaws, you know, anyone from a distance could see it. I remember bumping into Robin Cook, who was passionately anti-Iraq, anti-the war in Iraq. He resigned over it. Um, on the day the Gilligan report came out, and he cursed the report. He said, this is going to do our cause no good at all. Um, uh, you know, it's it's flawed, this report, and the focus will be on the flaws. And as often was the case with Robin Cook, he was right. And it would have just taken a bit of calm, collected, forensic scrutiny and responsibility for the BBC to get its act together and get that one right. But no, that one was wrong. And same with this, you know, the response was a, a defence of uh, Bashir without posing key questions. And, and then his reappointment, as I say, raises issues which are still to be addressed. And the other familiar pattern is that the BBC puts no one up to explain uh, what's going on, why it happened. Uh, by the time you hear this podcast, perhaps they will have done. But there are, as John Humphreys noted on Radio 4's Broadcasting House, there are plenty of them, these senior managers on six-figure salaries, all hide away whenever the BBC is the story. And that reflects, as I say, this tendency to opt for cocooned, shared assumptions uh, rather than being fully accountable. And the solution is obvious. It's not what some are saying, that you put another layer of independent, in inverted commas, uh, figures to scrutinise what news and current affairs are getting up to, um, that too would be a shapeless form of scrutiny. Who appoints these people? Who makes them independent? What is the criteria for independence? And as Jonathan Dimbleby has rightly noted, in the end, the number of these bodies will just weigh down to the point of collapse the whole institution. It needs far fewer of these well-rewarded managers and in very clearly defined jobs with clear lines of accountability. So if something goes wrong, it is clear who is responsible for that, uh, whatever it has happened to be. And if something goes right, it's clear who is responsible. I remember... Uh, Ricky Gervais or somebody like that saying that, you know, award ceremonies when the office kind of won awards, he, there were thousands of these BBC managers uh, claiming a connection with that triumph. But if anything goes wrong, they hide away. And it's not necessarily a reflection on the individuals, some of whom I know and uh, like, but it is, if you are within that hierarchy um there is a tendency to say oh well yeah i'm getting this really well-paid job great bbc pension to come i will go to the meetings do what is needed to be done and then kind of have a good life and actually it needs a much sharper approach and also a clear sense of purpose what were they doing flying a helicopter over cliff richard is, is that the purpose of uh, news and current affairs at the BBC. What does it really mean to be impartial? It's not, you know, they assert, oh, we're imp impartial, as if that calls it. It doesn't. And nor is it a defence that both the left and right detect bias. Uh, they are often wrong. They are actually wholly wrong about overt bias. That isn't the case. But there are shared assumptions. Um which need to be challenged as well about the centre ground. I think they have problems struggling with left and right um, and that the centre ground is almost close to a form of impartiality. But there is no centre ground, as we've all discussed here on this podcast many times. But that's a different issue. The one now, which is part of this recurring pattern, is who is really in charge. And as I say, I bet Tony Hall didn't feel directly involved with the reappointment of Bashir. We'll, we'll no doubt find out over time. Um, and they had a new 
editor of Current Affairs, News and Current Affairs had come in, uh, James Harding and this guy from ITN who was incidentally also involved in the decision to send a helicopter over Cliff Richard's house. They reappointed Bashir. Perhaps they didn't know the doubts, but there is an army of managers who would have done who probably didn't alert them to it. They didn't feel responsible or accountable. That's the issue. And sorting that out is relatively straightforward. And the stakes are very high because I think all of us lot want it to work. And it doesn't. And it's well known within the BBC. Um, you know, every presenter I speak to, senior correspondents, are in despair about this multi-layered bureaucracy that stifle them. Um, but they don't speak out because these figures have the power of patronage and they could wreck or make the careers of uh, ambitious on-screen figures or ambitious behind-the-scenes editors of programmes. So they keep quiet about it. You get hints of it from people when they've left, Jeremy Paxman, John Humphreys, etc., uh, Jonathan Dimbleby, all complain about the over-management, and that is the cause of the crises. Um, and in a way... Their whole raison d'etre to, in inverted commas, protect the BBC is so ironic when they are the problem. Anyway, that's uh, enough of that. Uh, it's it's going to run. I mean, there are going to be other big stories this week. Dominic Cummings, he's speaking in front of the select committee uh, looking into the COVID situation. Wow. That's, you know, cancel whatever you're doing. It's Wednesday morning. Um, you got to watch that. And uh, we will no doubt be reflecting on it next week. In the meantime, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to now return to return. We haven't started them yet. I'm going to start with uh, some of your questions. We're going to begin with Labour. Now, this is a classic sequence here of very different perspectives. First of all, up from uh, Helen Gordon. She says, I listen to your podcast while baking bread. That's cool, Helen. That's John Lennon in the Dakota apartment. Um, bit dated, but it's no, it's, it's become fashionable again. God, I'd love to sample your bread. Anyway, Helen says she was stirred to write while it's in the oven. Oh, my God. Well, I hope it didn't get burnt because you, you say you're going to write politely. She said, it still grates when you discuss McDonnell and Corbyn as though they were credible Labour thinkers. Corbyn's anti-Semitism and McDonald's defence of IRA violence always disqualified them from any credible role in developing Labour thinking. Their views have never entered the mainstream of credible political opinion, though the Corbynite legacy lingers and still deters decent thinking folk from supporting Labour. Well, Helen, I hope you haven't got uh, bread in the oven now because you might not like my response. I mean, on the specifics, um, you know, uh, most people I speak to, and this is my view from knowing him a bit, I don't think Corbyn is anti-Semitic. Starmer, who's suspended him, doesn't think he is. Um, and Macdonald and his past is unquestionably an issue, and it's a perfectly valid view to raise that. And the, the, the past of Corbyn, when they were backbenchers with no sense of ever acquiring power within the Labour Party and they were protesters and you might well think they made terrible calls in that context. However, I think that you have to sort of take a group who have acquired the leadership of the main party seriously, who in the 2017 election uh, made gains that no one ex expected or thought was possible. So yeah, I do kind of analyse and take them seriously and don't just buy into the idea that you kind of say, oh, that was, you know, let's just slag them off. Because it, I think it's more interesting than that. But Helen, you know, I'm sorry, your bread will be erupting in the oven at that. And then I've got a different perspective. Uh, John Lansman emailed John Lamsman, of course, who was part of the Corbyn project, um, who goes so much further back. He organised, as God, he must have been so young, uh, Tony Benn's deputy leadership campaign in 1981. And his first campaign, I kind of 
followed with interest as a student. Young student, of course, if you're trying to work out my age. And it was a, God, was it a mesmerizing campaign. Um, I know you won't like me saying this, Helen, but uh, listening to Ben was like listening to kind of music. I mean, he was an orator who I don't think has been equaled since. Um, But anyway, John Lansman writes kind of the opposite of Helen. Just listened to your podcast and wanted to argue that the 2019 manifesto may have been way over the top as an election manifesto, on top of which there was also um, an over-the-top edition, colossal over-the-top edition, he writes, in compensating the WASPy women. Excellent. Yeah, that was halfway through the campaign. They suddenly announced another many billion pounds. Um, I mean, it was a real sign of panic, and Helen will agree with this, I think, you know, just kind of desperate naivety as well. But, John Landsman argues, it wouldn't be it would be in it would not be inappropriate as the basis of a medium to long term programme, setting out the party's longer term objectives with manifestos produced shortly before elections to focus on first term priorities and the government opposition failings with a narrative on the key issues and problems. And John says I argued this at the NEC's post election review and it met with pretty broad support which crossed factional divides. Uh, individual commitments generally have widespread support, but were seen as unachievable in a single parliament. Um, yeah, well, there was definitely that. As I said last week, you know, I, I kind of tried to dissect Blair's most recent analysis, which raised many questions which he didn't address. But Blair is right that if you put together a whole series of costly uh, proposals. You might poll them, find each one is popular, but put together and it becomes far, far too much. But it, it, the, the, there were interesting ideas about the role of government as a benevolent force in both the 2017 and 2019 uh, manifesto. Um, and I can see why across the factions, as John Lansman puts it, um, there was an acknowledgement that if presented in a different way, some of those ideas could um, remain potent. In fact, I think they will become more potent because under Johnson, this government is openly more statist than, say, New Labour. I mean, New Labour did a lot, but they never put the case openly for the state or government activity. Um, they, They thought it was still too unpopular to overtly say what they were doing in some cases. It's wholly different now. So in that sense, there's a point. But to frame it as some are, Starmer needs to recommit to the 2019 manifesto is a disastrous framing for any new Labour leader, because basically that will be translated as we were slaughtered, but your test of leadership is to put it in front of the country again. Now, I know no one means that in detail, but that is being kind of almost set as a test for Starmer, and it is the wrong one. So there we are, two very different perspectives. Um, Gillian Oliver writes, she says that um, Hartlepool voters told the... Oh, yeah, this is the thing. You know, last week when I was analysing all the advice Keir Starmer was getting, it was a long podcast, you know, because I say the whole world is advising him at the moment. I said the Angela Rayner one, we're too patronising to voters. I said, what does that mean? What programme does that point to, you know, to someone who clearly aspires to be a leader? What are the economic implications of being too patronising? What does it mean? Anyway, Gillian uh, has written in to say, Hartlepool voters told the BBC they felt patronised when Keir Starmer came to town and ate fish and chips and drank beer. This was taken by some to be the opposite of what Keir himself would choose to do. But what he does when he is uh, trying super hard to ape the locals. Um, Hartlepool voters were offended to be offered a losing candidate from a neighbouring constituency and a Remainer at that. Hartlepool people remember the days when Mandelson was MP, himself parachuted in, of course, but as one of the big people in government could actually act for them and did. 
They told the Guardian's Today and Focus podcast they still remember the feeling of being at the heart of things through their local MP. So, well, I think you're suggesting that having the fish and chips on that it was a kind of patronising uh, gesture um, and imposing a candidate. Yeah, no, I can see that. But... I mean, these are relatively small things. And I agree that Keir Starmer, where he has got control over his destiny and Labour's destiny, uh, very limited because it's all about the government at the moment, he tends to make mistakes. And imposing an ardent Remainer was clearly a mistake. And I agree with you about these clunky photo calls. You're right, they are. Maybe that's what she was referring to, Angela Rayner, in her many hinted criticisms of uh, Keir Starmer. Um, but even so, it's not a program. You know, these tonal criticisms, you know, we, oh, we've got to be more positive. Oh, we've got to connect. Oh, we've got to do this. I mean, th that is not a prescription towards power. Um, in that sense, the debate that I've just reflected between Helen and John Landsman uh, is, is, is more substantial. Uh, but the tonal stuff is too, too vacuous. But I, I, I take your point. Uh, he, he, he can be clunky. Well, I've argued that. Do you remember we talked about the flags and stuff? Um, anyway, thank you all for those. Um, Simon Lockyer. Oh, another one. Labour. Big, big theme this week. Uh, great to see the return of the theatre shows. Thank you very much, Simon. I should have said at the beginning, but you've prompted me. Live at King's Place, post-lockdown, at the theatre on June the 28th, and then in July, live at um, Greenwich Theatre and the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in uh, Shoreham. So if you're south, well, you can come to King's Place, but you can also go to those. They'll all be different anyway. Thank you for reminding me. You can get tickets on the website, and I'll have the link on the blurb for this podcast. By the way, the King's Place one is being streamed as well. Anyway, Simon writes, is there any point Labour looking to win the votes of traditional Labour voters back, as do these people even still exist? Why not focus on policies to engage with the majority of the electorate rather than going looking for a small minority which would never win you an election? Um, it looks like a one-party state from now on because devolution has counted against the opposition policy parties. The only possible route would be the model of Andy Burnham using local politics to engage, etc., etc. Yeah, I, th I think um, this, again, I use this word clunky a lot with reference to Keir Starmer. The targeting of the so-called red wall seats... Um, almost as a project in itself and not part of a wider message has been part of his um, miscalculated leadership. And you do wonder, I mean, it's very interesting when you look at the demographics of these seats, a lot of the young people have left and it's an older population, often house-owning. Um, I mean, Rob Watson last week did Is the New Divide um, between homeowners and non-homeowners and quite a few in the red wall seats are homeowners with cars in their drives um, and are elderly and maybe have decided that their vote for the Conservatives is going to be more than fleeting. We don't know that. I mean maybe they are biddable but I think it would be part of a wider project um, and building back locally is yeah, no, I disagree with you about that, Simon. There has to be a coherent national message which all parts of the UK can relate to. And that has been lacking for, God, years. Laundry Joe writes, do you remember Laundry Joe? He listens to the podcast doing his laundry. Uh, I wonder if you could explain how the Conservative Party manages to pull off the following trick, in England at least. On the one hand, they present themselves as the insurgents against a liberal establishment. On the other, they present themselves as the inevitable and established party of government. Uh, yeah, it's clever. And as I've discussed here, politics is partly an art form and, a, and you need the skill of a conjurer. And for Johnson and co. to present themselves as insurgents against the establishment, whilst also presenting themselves as the natural party of government, is a conjuring trick. But they've pulled it off because they are, at the moment anyway, much, much better at politics. I mean, Johnson 
is a flawed conjurer in that at any point the tricks could all go badly wrong and in number 10 they're all on edge wondering when that might be if it happens and Cummings will attempt to expose the conjurer's tricks on Wednesday at that committee meeting but you're right they've pulled it off and it's an art form and Blair was an artist in opposition you know he he actually gave or created a sense of momentum and purpose and radical verve and decisiveness when on all the key issues he didn't dare say what he felt or hadn't made up his mind the single currency electoral reform uh, loads of others um, and th th that wins elections you've got to be an artist um, and it's not the only qualification but it's an essential qualification a different topic Noah Keats writes to make funding more transparent and open do you think political parties should be funded by the state this would therefore remove the financial influence of both trade unions and millionaire donors on policy making I do absolutely um, and it's very dangerous to do but I can reveal something which I don't think has ever come out before that Ed Miliband didn't dare say in advance of the election he believed in state funding because you immediately get slaughtered, you know, taxpayers pay for politics. Um, but I think he was planning to introduce it if he had become prime minister. Um, it would sort out a lot. I mean, it would be deeply unpopular. The mail would crucify a prime minister to introduce the legislation. But once you get through all that, God, does it sort out this funding nightmare which produces scandal after scandal on both sides. Um, Dominique Ajoul from France. In the context of Professor Curtis and other political analysts coming to the conclusion that recent voting patterns are strongly aligned to the Brexit referendum voting patterns. A question. Some 18 months after Britain has left the EU, as per the demands of those who voted for it, what is the explanation for the continued obsession with Brexit on their part? Why, along with the right-wing media, can't they just let go and embrace their victory? Uh, well, it, it was very interesting. That was Curtis's conclusion, that the key divide in explaining those results a couple of weeks ago was Brexit, Remainer or uh, pro-Brexit. And um, the answer is, Dominica, is that Brexit is not yet done. Um, so Johnson benefits from having theoretically done it, and voters feel that they've delivered and all the others equivocated and tried to block what they wanted to happen. Um, but also it's still a process. And they are lined up with the Brexit gang. And the Remainers still want some kind of softer solution or a return to the European Union. So it's going to be ongoing for a long time. Uh, proof of this from Stephen Townsley. It seems that this week Lord Frost is saying that he didn't understand the deal he negotiated with the EU. Frosty now, yeah, good old Frosty, Frosty, Frosty. Um, he's now surprised by the consequences of the protocol and thinks that the EU aren't playing to what they had agreed. They're playing fully to what was agreed. And uh, Frosty said, oh, it's surprising some of us what's happened. Well, he couldn't have read what he signed up to because everyone knew what the consequences would be. Um, but you can see how they're going to play it. They're going to blame the European Union and do another sort of crusade against the EU, which, to go back to Dominica's point, will reinforce the whole Brexit um, dynamic amongst voters too, I fear. OK, uh, oh, back to Starmer, and it's an interesting point from Helen Thornton. One thing I've been wanting to ask you for a long time is why Starmer doesn't seem keen at all on having around him the Labour members of Parliament with the most experience, e.g. Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn. The only one in the shadow cabinet who one hears about is Ed Miliband. Is Starmer like Johnson in not wanting to employ those with more standing or talent than he has? Or is it that they've been offered positions but have opted to remain as chairs of select committees I don't think they have been offered I mean Yvette Cooper was interviewed the other day and asked directly whether she had been offered a post and she said she hadn't been um, and I assume that's the case with Hillary Benn because I've got a feeling now uh, that Hillary Benn 
would accept a post. He sort of suggested that. Um, but clearly, that hasn't happened. I'm not fully sure why. I know privately at the beginning, Starmer spoke to some of these people, like Yvette Cooper, and said that closer towards an election, um, a role in the Shadow Cabinet might well be, and it would have to be a very senior role, might be possible. But that's part of the issue. Um, who he would disappoint uh, to get them in or demote and I guess I mean maybe he was thinking of bringing them back but the chaos he made of his early moves in that reshuffle perhaps limited what he felt he could do um, we're now moving over to Switzerland Mark Hawes a uh, question from Switzerland where I despair of British politics uh, despite the Covid missteps an ongoing Brexit debacle and a litany of lies and corruption, Johnson still seems to be the golden boy of the English electorate. Given the realities of politics, this might change at some point. My question is, do you think that it will be gradual or seismic? I think, Mark, um, when there is a turn from the wider electorate and the media against a Conservative government, it's usually a seismic event, not gradual. It was the falling out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992, which did for John Major. Not the election of Tony Blair as leader, although that guaranteed a big Labour victory. Um, but Labour would have won under John Smith, and it followed the reaction of voters to 1992. So I think it needs to be something seismic. Andrew Kitching asks, the pro-farming Shire, or as I've heard them described, Waitrose Tories, are not going to be happy about the Australian free trade deal. The Red Wall, Little Tories, will be keen on it. What will be the consequences for Johnson? This is a big, these free trade agreements are going to create new divides. With good cause, the farmers here are apoplectic about the deal with Australia, which of course is a mere prelude to the American trade deal, uh, which will be negotiated, they hope, the government, fairly soon. And it is going to uh, create uh, divides. Uh, Andrew Kitchen wonders whether this will be an angle for the Lib Dems in rural constituencies if they have the guile to exploit it. There's no sign of much guile there, Andrew, but you are right um, to highlight that these trade deals are going to create new divides. And it's very interesting watching the NFU, the National Farmers Union, uh, and its leader, Minette Batters. Um, she's apoplectic, as Johnson said, the last thing I would ever do is do anything against British farmers. And of course, that has proven to be as unreliable as other narratives from him. Uh, Venetia Kane is very angry because I didn't know this. Um, apparently, I mean, she must be in a choir because choirs, uh, uh, she says, you may have rehearsed with your choir, not me. I don't think it's aimed at me on Monday. I can't sing, Venetia. Which would probably, uh, uh, apparently you can't uh, do choirs with more than six indoors. Uh, 30 outdoors socially distanced, but gyms have reopened and all the rest of it. You point to a discrepancy, uh, which I didn't know, Um bias against choirs in the government um i think that's that they're stepping on risky terrain with that one venetia i reckon you might get that turned round at some point uh, uh oh back to the lib dems they're getting a lot of publicity on this podcast matthew johnson writes from the his pool in or a pool the pool is it yours matthew in dubai Oh, yeah, well, that conjures up. They, you know, listen, everyone around the pool listening to rock music, you listening to this podcast. Well, it is rock and roll. Uh, he says, I'm impressed by Layla Moran, who has the teacher quality you talk about, always clear in her answers and a good communicator. A future leader of the Lib Dems who are wholly re irrelevant these days. Um, 
what about her? Who has the best teaching community ability in Labour? I've always been impressed by David Lammy. His passion and personal conviction really does impress me. He's a former Harvard graduate, trained and practised as a barrister, and is very sharp, a great teacher and communicator. Is there any hope for him to lead Labour, and what would the reaction be? Yeah, I agree with you about Leila Moran. She is a good interviewee, and she's authentic. And boy, do they need... Um, a bit of kind of animation. Ed Davey is a, a very decent uh, guy, but um, they're, they're just not in the picture. And that's partly because they, they aren't in the picture. It's such a small parliamentary party. Um, but she, she, she is an effective one. I agree with you. I also agree with you about David Lammy. He has the effect of holding an audience. Um, I was watching a Zoom he was on the other week. And there were about six very senior people from across America and Britain. He was the one who lit up the Zoom. And it, it is, a, it is an, as I say, it's not the only qualification of leadership. And I don't know whether he has some of the others, but he certainly meets that one. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think he needs to be up there as one of the potential uh, leaders um, if a vacancy arrives. Uh, Andrew Bimson wonders, you know how the Cameron Osborne generation of senior Tories looked on Tony Blair as a model for them to follow? Well, I'm wondering whether Andy Burnham may be doing the same with Boris Johnson. Johnson was the London mayor, got back into the Commons. Could Andy Burnham be looking at a by-election in 2022? Well, of course, he's quite open that he wants to be a Labour leader. And he needs to get back into the Commons to do it. So, as they say, watch that space. He would need them. Um, Johnson was ruthless about it and got back in, and that's what he would have to do. Uh, Dario Linares uh, writes. By, by the way, Dario does his own brilliant podcast. Um, he interviewed me for it uh, recently, and it was it, it was a great interview. Uh, the only way I can see uh, Boris Johnson losing the next election is if somehow there is some accountability laid at his door. Um, there won't be uh, directly attributed to. Uh, this won't be directly attributed to Brexit or the pandemic, but more around economic repercussions. It seems he's going to continue to be Keynesian by default until at least after the next election. My question for the podcast is on this. Do you think Johnson might get rid of Sunak before the next election if he thinks the Chancellor is becoming too powerful or popular or he gets too much interference from number 11 over Boris Johnson's ambitious spending plans. Um, I think there will be tensions, and this will be a running theme uh, if we're out of the pandemic. Uh, Johnson is, I think, as far as he's got any kind of rooted ideas, um, his, his, his main rooted idea is libertarianism. That is a constant with him, which is why he struggled with the pandemic in ways that Cummings is about to highlight. Um, but, you know, his economic outlook, we've discussed this before, you know, kind of he reveres Thatcher, but he, he shows himself constantly to be more of a Keynesian, uh, whereas Sunak is a sort of Osborne sound economic Thatcherite. And I think there will be tensions. But remember, he's already sacked one chancellor. I don't think he will try and get rid of another. Geraldine proposes another Labour candidate. Sorry, Geraldine, for some reason I can't find your surname. But after the weekend polls, did you read those weekend polls? Conservatives on 46, Labour on 28. Uh, she suggests Rachel Reeves is in poll position. Respected, Bank of England background. And I can see her outside number 10. Yeah, she kind of has some of the qualifications, but I'll tell you what's really interesting. The number of questions this week proposing alternative Labour leaders. Uh, Keir Starmer, if he's to get out of this, needs to get out of it quite quickly. And that means the opinion polls need to change. He's under... Trouble with opposition is failure tends to feed on itself. So does success. So if you're seen as the likely next prime minister, you become more popular, more respected in the media. And if you're seen to be failing, the media becomes more kind of sceptical and dismissive and your own party stirs. And we at the Rock and Roll Politics podcast start contemplating alternative candidates, which too feeds on the sense that the current leader isn't up to it. 
uh, Fraser, sorry, I haven't got your surname, Fraser, puts a, a alternative what if. Um, he's right, I'm, I'm sceptical of what ifs. Um, but what if after the 2015 election of Jeremy Corbyn, the PLP hadn't gone on a four-year assault and instead got behind him? And therefore, Theresa May wouldn't have been in a position to call the election in 2017. Uh, Johnson would have had his uh, bill passed um, which bill the brexit bill i suppose because they'd have had a majority not the hung parliament um and at the end of it all jeremy corbyn still labor leader would have won an election we're leaping several hurdles here fraser um but what i do think is the case is that uh you know the the reaction of some Labour MPs on the day Corbyn, you know, the last thing Corbyn wanted, you know, was to have been Labour leader but on the day he won with a landslide to start tweeting what a disaster it was and all the rest of it um, contributed to the sense that Labour were kind of falling apart, certainly by 2019 because they were and then the other side engages and as John, John McDonnell observed um, you, you don't win if you're seen as split um, and Fraser says, did some in the PLP prefer Johnson as PM instead of Corbyn? Yeah, I think some did, um, and were almost kind of, well, they couldn't be wholly open about it, else they'd have lost their, they'd have been kicked out, but uh, there the, the was, by the end, waves of kind of intense anger on both sides. There still are, you know, this kind of Starmer stuff. I mean, Starmer, to put it at its mildest, has to prove he's got it but to set the test stick to the 2019 manifesto or we're going to challenge you or you've got to win Batley and Spen or we're going to challenge you is adding to the sense of Labour being utterly dysfunctional in its internal loathings um okay oh, god yeah we've got still more questions um uh, have I, shall I do one more? Because uh, it's even those of you running 10k will be near finishing as you listen. Um, and let me just see if I've got another question here. Um, oh no, that that is uh, the last. Sorry if I haven't uh, read them all out. We got loads this time. Um, those are the ones I selected because it reflected a kind of range of views about Labour. Uh, Brexit still ongoing um, and and one or two other issues as well um, if I didn't read them out I've read them all I'll try and read some more out next week but do keep them coming um, you know the address uh, God I always forget the address it's Steve Rick R-I-C Steve R-I-C 1414 at iCloud.com so yeah it's going to be another interesting week the fallout at the bbc will continue and as i say the significance really is about how we want this publicly funded organization to thrive and not be plunged into these crises of which there is an absolutely firm pattern um so that's what we want and uh the this case by the way uh, the bashir case is nuanced in the sense that Prince William's attack intensified the heat on the BBC, but he was attacking it from a very subjective perspective. All the evidence is, is that she did want to give that interview. The means by which Bashir got it was clearly outrageous, but she wanted to give it. And she clearly didn't regret it because she continued to be in touch with Bashir. And these BBC managers clung to that. Um out of, I suspect, kind of complacency rather than looking at the wider picture. Um, but because it's part of a pattern about the way these people um, are so cocooned and yet neurotic, uh, both diligent and lazy, um, and it's it's a consequence of the structure, the layers and layers of these managers... Tim Davies is trying to do something about it, I've read, but let's let's see. That's the key. And the broader picture is we want it to do well, not to fail uh, in a way that gives such ammunition to its enemies whose <laughs> moral basis for their attacks um, 
so absurd that um, um, I don't know how they dare do it. But they, they do it because in this case it's a genuine news story which raises genuine issues. Okay, uh, yeah, so next week, Cummings maybe, fallout, if there is, maybe he'll get away with it, Boris Johnson. Maybe they'll just brief, how can you trust anyone who goes to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight, even though they him, themselves trusted him because they kept him in the post. Um, anyway, God, what weird times we're living through. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for brilliant questions. Look forward to more in the coming days. And let's all get together again next week. Don't forget, book your tickets for the live shows or the stream of the live shows. And, oh yeah, if you could give it a rating, apparently it gets to more people. As I've said before, I've no idea how or why rating on iTunes and then he's like, oh yeah everyone can have access to it and our community will grow and grow anyway thank you very much have a great week see you next week bye government now whether on top of that uh, the system can cope post-Brexit and by the way the consequences of both post-Brexit are still massive and not yet to fully play out uh, all these other changes as well i don't know i'm not sure maybe those changes are necessary so a government is powerful enough to address that agenda but if that were to happen would the green party agree with the labor party with the lib dems you know fully agree yeah on it goes um and so i remain a skeptic of these sweeping changes happening quickly they might do but there's already a massive agenda out there to be addressed and on that joyful note, if it's okay with all of you, we'll come to a stop. My God, we've been going for a long time. I hope you've run, sorted out the masking tape, uh, done some rowing, drunk some whiskey, uh, sorted out your wisteria or whatever it is that you are planting when listening to the podcast. Uh, we've got through a lot. I don't think we've cracked everything. We'll have a clearer idea of the political landscape as kind of... Well, it will trigger all sorts of things, won't it, these elections? Whether the referendum in Scotland, what's the position of Keir Starmer and all the rest of it. So don't forget, get those tickets uh, for King's Place in my boudoir for one last time. History making, be part of history uh, at the King's Place website. And thank you all so much for listening. If you don't subscribe, do click that subscribe button. Then you'll get it automatically and everything else can be just relaxing mindfulness as politics continues to remain very very wild thanks for listening bye